I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. It's an unusual one because usually I've already been talking to the guest and doing a little bit of priming, but um, for the beginning of this show, this very special sixth episode, the halfway point of this limited series, I'm talking to Dante Spinotti, one of the most wonderful cinematographers who's ever lived. And uh, our conversation really started uh, too quick for us to get in a formal intro, uh, so I'm introducing him now. This is Dante Spinotti and I, a conversation that happened across the world me and Sydney, him from his Italian home in the Alps on his birthday. So if you're listening to this, a big happy belated birthday to Mr. Dante Spinotti. Um, shout him out there. Took some time away from his family to to wax lyrical about The Last of the Mohicans with us. Thank you, sir. Here he is, the great man. Dante Spinotti. Well, it feels really strange to speak in 177 episodes, 100 yeah, <laughs> about one film and then only one episode or one hour on another film. And so I had to come up with something that I thought would be great to do for Mohicans and you know, that ending, which I'm so glad to talk to you about today, that ending, that final sort of 12 minutes of the movie is one of the all-time greatest endings ever. And so I thought, well, that's what we'll do. I'll try and get yeah. about 12 people to talk about it, yourself included, and uh, a bunch of the gang who joined me on the previous journey. And, uh, and yeah, so we're just making like a little mini-series on uh, Mohicans, which I thought would be really fun. And, and of course, I want to talk to you about it because I've seen you in the documentary footage, funnily enough, in your red cap in the uh, behind-the-scenes footage on the set of Mohicans running around doing things in some of the behind the scenes footage and uh and so I thought well no one's going to be able to know this movie and that sequence better than you besides maybe Michael right right well um there's a very interesting thing about Mohicans that um uh, you know influenced myself which is uh um a couple of years after a few years after um, shooting Mohicans, I happened to read the book 
Yes. Or maybe reread the book. I might have read it earlier on. Reading the book and, and, and what, what comes out of it is that it's one of the most, if anybody needs to know what is the difference between a book and a movie on the same, <laughs> obviously on the same subject, well, The Last of the Mohicans is one of those cases because uh, in the movie, the spirit of the book is totally maintained. You know, it's gorgeous. Uh, the spirit, the love for nature, the respect for nature, uh, you know, whatever it was in the frontier uh, in those years, 1700. Uh, um, but you also understand what it means to make a movie that's based on a book. And uh, and uh, it's, 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 it's very good on Mohicans because you really see how the story is simplified, how, you know, all the drama and the love make the love story inside it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's really, really interesting for any, any student, for anybody that, you know, likes to know what it is to make a movie out of a book. And what a book, by the way. Mohicans for me was a very particular turn in my working life, in my career, because Michael had offered the movie to me. At some point, he said, Dante, we got this movie. We hadn't sh we, we shot Manhunter not many years before. Yes. And I finally am back into the idea of making a movie. It's great. I love it. I said, oh, fantastic. I mean, for me, Mohicans, if you look at the exterior of this house, it's, you know, I'm in the middle of mountains and nature here. In fact, somebody said the opening of Mohicans looks like what you see from your house. <laughs> Michael offered to call me to do this film. And then at some point, he kept delaying the start date. Yes. It was, uh, you know, it was probably it was supposed to start in March, saying instead it was going on and on and on. He had to push back. As it is in movies, you have to adjust the budget and the costs and the studio's ideas and all that. And in the meantime, I had an offer to do a film in in, 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 in Los Angeles, which would have introduced me into the unions in Los Angeles. So if I was to do that movie, I would have been a regular union member. I could have worked in California, United States, in Hollywood, yes. which was my aim anyway. So I took that for that reason. It was too much, you know. And in the meantime, Michael started the movie with somebody else after a while. It so happens that after four or five weeks of shooting, probably four, um, he didn't have a good relationship with this cinematographer that he hired, this DP. Um, you know, there are many reasons why this happens. I mean, it's it, they're all understandable. Anyway, um, and so he gave me a call. When I had finished the movie, I just came back two weeks earlier from L.A., on this other film that happened to be, I think, Beaches, or no, probably a movie with uh, Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer. It was called Frankie and Johnny. Frankie and Johnny. So I just come back. Michael calls and said, Dante, would you like to come up and take over? And I said, yes, because that was the dream movie of my life. And uh, I read the screenplay. I thought it was great. It really had to do with whatever I had inside myself. So they put me on a Concorde on a Friday, take off three hours and down in New York, other two hours in the evening. I land in the set of the fort at night and Guzmano Cesaretti takes me around to walk 
the set, and those big lights, and and there were these armies walking by me and training in these 1700 uh, war costumes, you know, the army, the French army, the yes. English army, exercising. And the guy was the guy who did uh, a very good uh, army trainer. I don't know if he did the Kubrick movie or not, but anyway, you know, uh, 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 whatever. <laughs> and I was thinking, is this the truth, you know, reality, or is this real, or is this a dream? And uh, next day, I start shooting the movie. Well, two days, I was really prepared for it, you know. And, um, and that's how, how I started. And uh, I shot probably, I mean, my work, more or less, give or take one scene or one sequence or another, starts when they enter the fort. Yes. When the party of the two girls, the daughters of the, of the, of the captain, or the fort, the colonel that leads the fort, they arrive at the fort. That's where, you know, I started my work. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. And I think, uh, if I can go on and talk, one of the main things that I changed was that I did realize that these guys were shooting in the forest using a lot of lights. Yes. So... Michael Mann was rehearsing, telling the cameraman, the DP, where he would have done the scene. The DP was placing lights in the forest here and there. Um, by the time they were ready to shoot, the light would have gone down. And these lights were really very evident. Yes. Not including for that in the fact that they, Michael wanted to change something. Moving a heavy light in the forest is not as easy is doing it on a parking lot or on a street. Yeah, of course. So it would take forever. All this was adding up. So my decision was to change the film stock. I remember moving from Agfa, that they chose to do the movie for some reason, to Kodak. Yes. So I knew that I could have pushed the film if I needed more light because the light was going down. I could have pushed the film stock. And... Uh, and, you know, the sensitivity inside the forest was much higher. So I started shooting the all the action stuff in the forest um, with no lights around. So we were moving very fast, maybe adding a little light on the faces. I mean, you have these beautiful costumes. Amazing Boston, costumes. The beautiful Carolina. What could have been better? Why put and, lights in there? And you talk, about, it, you talk about the fort. You talk about the fort as your entry point into the movie it's really kind of the entry point into the the wider story as it's being told. But that fort scenes, when you go in there and things are lit by firelight and the proximity of people to the fires is how well lit they are, that's the mad, That's where Mohicans really has that magic. You know, it starts to look, you talked about Kubrick, it starts to look like Barry Lyndon. It starts to look like those movies where they make a very tactical choice to just eliminate a lot of that unnatural light and go let's just go with what the light has to be in those spaces do the minor tweaks for for that just that element of perfection like you said with the faces but yeah fascinating fascinating insight yeah yeah yeah. no i i really tried to do as much as i could with the existing fire yes and just enhancing light from the existing fires and in a touch i actually wish michael told me this later 
uh, I actually wish I had added a little bit of uh, firelight movement in the artificial lights. Yes. Which at times are very beautiful um, in a kind of a painterly way. Yes. But I wish the light was moving a little bit. Yes. Um, the, the opposite happened in the later scene in the cave. Yes. Where our heroes hide in a cave, right? Yes. And, uh, and, uh, but so we shot the exterior in an existing waterfall. Yes. Which was the DuPont estate in Carolina somewhere or in Tennessee. They enter and then the interior was a stage. But what happened, I felt I had to reproduce the power of the water. The scene was lit, let's say, by moonlight. That yes. was the conventional, right? The idea of the approach. But I felt that I needed to move the light to add some, to express the power of those natural things like a heavy waterfall, yes. the situation which we're at. And so we built a couple of reflectors, uh, 12 by 12 feet, 4 by 4 meters of mylar, shiny stuff. And I slammed a couple of HMIs against it, and I had a couple of grips shaking these reflectors. So if you do see the scene, uh, the light from these reflectors goes into the, the cave and lights the actors. But as we did it, I felt that the light as it is was not very real, believable. So we had to add a lot of smoke, and we had to add a lot of mist. Yes. It was tough to shoot because the, the viewfinders were filled <laughs> up with water. Yes. Really <laughs> we had a lot of mist on day two. And we shot the whole scene with a lot of mist, a lot of smoke. That, and uh, when we were shooting towards the waterfall, we had the water running. Yes. We had a system that could deliver millions, thousands of gallons of water, you know, huge on stage. When we were shooting towards the interior, we couldn't have the water running for sound yeah. reason. So I had another frame set up with plastic where I had some water run through it, right? Yeah. So the lights, shaking lights, the mist, uh, the smoke, and the light was going through this frame, this plastic frame with the water running through, added to a very believable, dramatic, uh, you know, uh, kind of lighting that enhanced the emotional urgency, dramatic urgency of that scene. So you enter in this... And you just talked about two incredibly busy, but very beautifully staged scenes. You got those war scenes, which are big and sweeping, huge wide lenses, wide angles, beautiful pacing. You got that glorious shot, you know, of the of the war, two warring parties coming from either side, uh, down 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 the middle, attacking the British troops after the exit, and then obviously in the cave. Films like this don't normally sort of shoot sequentially, but can I ask, was the final scene of the movie, was that shot in some kind of order or was that one of the earlier scenes? Or how did that, how did that work, that final really crazily ambitious scene? What do you mean, the final scene? The, fi the final sequence of the film. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting here. That's what movie making is, you know, at its best. What happened, Magua? Uh, the name of the actor is um, Wes Studi. Can't remember. Wes Studi. Wes Studi hurt himself. Uh, he hurt himself at his knee, and he had to have surgery. 
you know, and we right. were shooting the movie. And so our producer was John Landau. And together with Michael Mann, they decided to have these two weeks in insurance. And we shot a lot of missing stuff. Yes. That was badly needed for the movie. Inserts of people running, close-ups and stuff like that during those two weeks. And in fact, I, I think those two weeks did great for the movie because without those, it would have meant adding a budget without knowing if the studio would have accepted it. And uh, so in those two weeks, we shot a lot of stuff. Magua came back. He was a little limping. <laughs> yeah. If you watch closely, you can tell. Right? But we could shoot the two final scenes. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I actually remember operating myself the camera and then summer on the two shots on the two guys facing each other, you know. The yeah. Mohican was uh, played by... Uh, Russell Maines. The Indian actor. Yeah. Russell Maines, Russell the, Maines. The, the activist, yeah. Yeah, and the Magua on the other side. And you have this moment in which just before Magua's death, they face each other. Yeah, those two, and Michael said those two shots are amazing. It's like the, you know, the whole universe is waiting for the destiny of those two guys, you know. Uh, it was just magic. I mean, uh, very strong nature, you know, the, those locations in Carolina were, uh, the ledge was very powerful. It was very tough to secure it. Yes. Because it was a group of engineers who had to put some nets under the rock ledge. Yes. Um, there were some very complex, dangerous stunts that had to be performed. Um, uh, it was just uh, very exciting just shooting it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, you, you're a, I mean, I'm extremely biased when I say this for anyone who, who's listening to this, but um, I think you're arguably one of the greatest cinematographers who's ever lived. And so, and I'm such a fan of your work, but I think that in that final sequence, just the, the way that it strips back language, you know, it takes away all the scripting. There is probably not really any spoke, really spoken interactions. There's people emoting, there's pe but really from the end of that sequence with that tribal leader, the Sasham who sort of gives out the justice of that moment, really from there, there's no more words to be said in this whole movie. It turns into this glorious, you know, ascent to the top of the mountain where these two guys are going to face off, like you said, those absolutely stunning finale shots with these two guys about to collide. But when you guys were, when you and Michael were working on it, when the people were working on it and, and it takes away all this dialogue and it takes away all this stuff, was there a complete mindset shift for the people doing it because essentially this big sweeping period epic just turns into a beautiful silent film. Like it turns into this, you know, it's a silent, it's, other than gun flashes and a few rare screams, it becomes like, and, and, and the sounds of, you know, weapons battering and flesh. It's just this glorious silent scene where every trick in the book, every cinematic storytelling device in the book is just thrown at us. Like every single tool. Was that something that, when you guys were designing it, it was just every trick that you knew in the world you were just throwing at it at that scene? Yeah, because the thing is, that book was probably written by Michael Mann. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he knows every trick in the book. Yes. You know, that's, and even something else. Um, uh, do you remember that uh, at some point there's a, 
beautiful close-up of uh, Jody May. Yes. Just before she falls off the cliff, right? Stunning close-up. And, uh, stunning close-up. Huh? A, a, yeah. a stunning and Michael, close-up. Michael telling me that uh, you got to pull off the most beautiful close-up here <laughs> you ever thought of. Like, okay, I put a little reflector there. <laughs> And also there were some drops coming from the top rock, you know, across the Yeah, train. from the waterfall above yeah, her. Really great, really great, a really great touch. A really great touch. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the famous racing to the top of the mountains was shot uh, by us, but also shot by Guzmano Cesaretti, a second unit. Yes. And that was also part of those two weeks yes. that we were allowed to shoot because of... Uh, of uh, West Tudy being hurt at his knee, you know. Um, yeah, and the whole finale there was, uh, you know, it, um, was was um, was an amazing location, and uh, you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, it was just too gorgeous to to, uh, you know. There was there was. I remember at one point there was one in one Indian guy. Who was shot, and then you pick him up. He's falling in the sky, right? Yes. That. And uh, the stunt action was done by the son of the stunt coordinator. Yes. His name right now I don't remember, but I worked with him two years ago in a pilot in in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was the stunt coordinator. I said, <laughs> I didn't want to tell him. Do you remember that day? He came to. Me. And do you remember that day? <laughs> because what happened is that a huge platform was built on the lower uh, ledge, right? Yes. But it was jumping from, uh, I don't know how much could have been, 25 meters in the sky, 30 meters, right? Wow. And uh, he really missed the edge by four feet, meaning he came down and there was this huge platform ready for him. Cardboard boxes, you know, rubber, whatever you think. But he missed the other edge. It was 1,000 feet down by four feet. So I didn't want to tell him, do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> and his father was right there oh, looking man. at him. And he said, okay, great. Yeah, well, went well. So, and uh, we were so compressed with time, as all the movies are, obviously. But yes, that, uh, but Michael had in mind the movie which had power. Um, so, for instance, when we did the uh, scene of the attack in the valley, yes, uh, the attack of the Indians, right, to the army coming out of the British fort, yes, uh, we we had five five crews shooting. I mean, even I directed the shot. I mean, directed, not director of photography. I directed the shot, yes, which was a reverse angle on the guy, the Indian who tries to kill. Cora, one of the two girls, right? Yes. So I did. Everybody was, you know, trying to do something to try to make the day, as the studio had said, uh, uh, you know, you guys have two days to shoot this period. They're not going to give you the access. And uh, we did it, obviously. I do remember while scouting, they were scouting these areas by helicopter in pre production. And Michael was scouting with this production designer, probably his first AD. And he was indicating a spot down on the ground, not far from the fort, 
this has to be the valley yes. where, you know, the army retreats and then Magua's men attack. Yes. And so they found it out. They cut all the flat part of this valley on the bottom. was entirely cut out. The vegetation was cut out. Yes. And it was replaced by these plants, which were corn-like plants that had the flowers on top. So you have this beautiful garden-like scenario with this, you know, where these thrushes attack with yeah. killings and you know, happens. So the contrast was really tough to stay away from. Uh, <laughs> you know, to stay away from this beautiful plantation of uh, something that looked like really some sort of corn. With, you know. Yes. Um, and there were also some snakes around, so we had to be careful not to <laughs> step on any of those, you know, unconsciously. Um, yeah, and uh, I shot some stuff at night. I remember in backlight with smoke that we're supposed to look like day. Yes. And the day look like day. I had some these big lights in backlight and laying out smoke, and you could really use the last moment of light to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah. and it was, you know, an extremely very physically demanding shoot because uh, uh, we shot most of the movie from July to August. Yeah, North Carolina. North Carolina famously extremely humid, right? It's uh, very steamy. Yeah, and so you can imagine when we were shooting the exterior of the fort, Usually at three o'clock in the afternoon, they started pouring with rain, and so all the extras go back in the tents. All the six cameras were back in the trucks, uh, you know. And three hours later, around six o'clock, everything comes back out. Yes. And you have the last hour and a half of light, and I used to push the film two thousand ASA and use the long lenses and get the guys coming out of the. Uh, the fort, the group with the uh, Hawkeye, and uh, it was a physically very complex. And I remember this driving down to the locations on this uh, with Michael Mann on Michael Mann's car, the, you know, this Lincoln Town car, this big sedan, and everybody was holding a coffee, you know, and they <laughs> yeah. were logging roads filled with mud, so this fucking car was <laughs> sliding and jumping up down and left and right. Keeping the coffee in position was tough. <laughs> but when Michael was going down to the set, uh, the organization locked everybody else driving in that stretch of uh, logging road. Yes. So, you know, we could go down fast. And, yeah, and all the locations were in different spots, up the mountain, down the mountain. Um, as Michael was telling me, these things need to be extremely exact because if you just... It's like when you have the scene when the Indians have imprisoned the two girls, right? Yes. Cora and John May, I think. And they bring her up. They climb. They, they climb in the somewhere. mountain. Yeah. They climb the mountain and they end up into this uh, uh, trial, right? Yeah. With the judge who's that old Indian guy. That was an amazing scene. Uh where and then and then you have uh, Hawkeye arriving, and, you know, and defending and offering himself instead of, and then they definitely finally killed the, the officer, the English officer. 
Um, yeah, great movie and uh, very tough places to reach, you know. How and the it, humidity and all the rest. How was it on the actors? Because you know, this is the other thing: is Michael and 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 you as 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 his cinematographer, you've worked with arguably some of the greatest actors ever. And I think a lot of people sometimes forget that Daniel Day Lewis, who's one of the greatest actors of this generation, um, was in this movie and doing exactly as Michael demands of all of his actors, which is a really rigorous preparation, you know, like running around the woods and learning how to shoot firearms and load muskets on the run and and do all these things. What was it like to be on that set? You know, extremely prepared people, again, extreme dedication as as you've seen throughout everything you guys have done together. Well, um, yeah, we know that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis had an incredible preparation, uh, physical preparation, you know, running around and shooting, as well as on heat, all these guys going to, big actors going to the shooting range to train on how to hold a gun and shoot. Yes. Uh, I remember the very early days that I was there, uh, first or second day, Michael was probably being nice, you know, because I just come in and trying to help this transition. And so one day in front of, uh, I was telling to Danny Day-Lewis, who was next to Michael Van, I said, you know, I have the feeling that Michael has gotten a little softer. <laughs> you know, maybe he's aging. Maybe in this movie it's different than somewhere else, some other time. And he looks, looks at me and says, laughing, "What is softer? Anything but Mike is not any softer. I guarantee you." Um, well, the, the the thing with Michael is that the way he uh, manages his crew and his teams and. Uh, and uh, the way he shoots movie, all depends on the incredible level of preparation that he has on the movie. I mean, yes. Um, say with Russell Crowe on the Insider, Michael knows more than anybody else. Yes, and uh, he's prepared on any single beat, you know, any single comma. Not only technically with the cameras and all that, what he needs and how we have to get ready for his shooting the scene, but also. Any note on acting, any that causes also has caused some strain with the actors at times. Yeah, I remember with Robert De Niro, there were some you know uh, conflicts on Insider. So, oh, sorry, on Heat. Um, but everybody recognizes this, gives this to Michael. You know, he he he, he knows exactly how he wants to proceed and uh, knows beat by beat. So because of that, I've always seen actors, including. For instance, of Public Enemies, we had, uh, what is the name of the guy? Not, uh, Not Christian, uh, the guy Johnny Depp, Christian Bale? It's Christian Bale. Yes. Christian Bale's notoriously a guy that discusses what he do and what he does and what, how he wants to do it. And, um, and Christian was, uh, I mean, everybody really has a very serious attitude on the set. Yeah. Right? Because Michael has a, a very high uh, end of preparation on whatever he does. Yes. You know, it's, it's, yeah, he works, works and works and works, and he has notes on everything. And, uh, you know, so he really knows how his movie is going to, 
turn out without taking away the uh, surprise of finding things when you're shooting on the set, obviously. Yes. So, yeah, a lot of planning. So and that is why the discipline on set can be so efficient and so useful and so everybody has a high end of concentration uh, for the same reason. Anybody can do a movie with Michael as long as understands what he's trying to do. Yes. Because if you don't understand what he's trying to do, or if you think you disagree, you better go find another movie because <laughs> Michael is not the guy. No, because yeah. he's got a, he's got a clear vision. It's and it makes sense. Yeah. You guys and this is I suppose later when you think about public enemies as a film that was completed, that's a you know, obviously a, a period crime drama um but you know i guess it's got this it's got this weird detachment because it's so beautiful like beautifully stunningly digitally photographed that it kind of almost changes your relationship to it in a little bit of a way but one of the things and one of the reasons why i wanted to come and why i wanted to do this podcast miniseries and i wanted to talk to you again dante is because i wonder when I look across Michael's entire body of work and you working alongside him and some of your tr tremendous body of work, it's like this movie is an outlier. This like period drama, this big sweeping romantic uh, epic uh, in the past, but it's but as someone who has watched it so many times and continues to appreciate it, it's so magnificent. So I just wonder whether you know whether you whether you had the feeling or michael had the feeling that it was like oh, i think we've done it and we've done our very best job that we could do or is it just not hollywood just doesn't want to make these kind of movies because i just feel like you know i feel like other filmmakers might have got pigeonholed into making 10 of these kinds of movies but michael made one magnificent one and then said no i'm going to go back and do those other things that i want to do now no i think uh moving to something else is due to curiosity and interest in Issue, I mean, in themes which are completely different one from the other. Yes. Uh, you know, I do remember one day asking Michael, hey, Michael, is great. We're dealing now with this fantastic period piece, which I don't know, for some reason, I'm. it's fine. It's beautiful to shoot period pieces, uh, even for a cinematographer, you know, because yes. there's so much uh, you can evoke in terms of atmospheres. It's, you know, it's not like going into a supermarket. It's, <laughs> it's inventing something else. And nature has so much to do about it. Um, so I think it's mostly moving. In, Michael is moving his interest. In my small environment, I like to do the same thing myself. Yes. Um, you know, to, to go from one theme to a different theme. Uh, it's just great because then you you emerge yourself in this solution. Yes. And in the process, you learn a lot. You, you know, you know, yeah. Um, and you can adapt. Uh, the way your lighting, technology, all these different ways of, uh, you know, different issues, themes to approach. Well, I just want to say probably in summary, um, yeah, I think this has been a wonderful little chat about Mohicans. So thank you so very much. And I, I, I have to agree, you know, if I, if I couldn't say it more emphatically than all of the guests that are going to be on this show talking about it, your magnificent work and all the work of that entire crew to pull together not only this movie, which is an extremely tight and lean and beautiful epic, but the ending is an all-timer. And uh, and on your resume, 
working alongside Michael and just on your resume in general is probably some of the greatest American films that are about the last 50 years. So thank you. It's an absolute honor again to talk to you. No, thanks. Thanks for what you do. It's always great to, you know, you're doing something fantastic. I mean, uh, um, are you doing something video or just are you just on radio? Oh, no, this is us. This is audio. This is audio for us. Uh, audio, audio only, yeah. Um, I hope one day you move to some sweeping visuals in your programs. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, no, first person, the first person in the universe that I would ask to light those sweeping visuals, sir, is you. Oh, there you <laughs> go. That would <laughs> um, be great, especially because in these days you really – you don't really light much, you know. You have these beautiful cameras that react beautifully, so you can uh, you can really work with. Uh, you start working really very close to the way your eyes see things. You know, yes. you don't need to. It doesn't mean anything. You still need everything, <laughs> but. Uh, I just want to let everyone listening know that Dante has been lighting our Skype call. So while we're talking over Skype and you're only listening, I've watched I've watched a master cinematographer at work lighting his his uh, his frame. So that's correct. It's, 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 it was kind of interesting <laughs> right here. <laughs> it's perfect. Like you can see it. the master at work. I've been able to see it. No one else is going to see it but me. But that's uh, that's a real treat. Thank you so much. It's been a treat talking to you for this. Thank project. you. Mate. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.